I completely stole this introduction from John Piper. Sorry. <laughs> How many of you, when you were seeking a spouse, or maybe when you were starting your career, or maybe when you were going to college, or maybe when retirement is approaching, have ever wondered to yourself, if I only knew God's will? If I only knew God's will, this decision would be so much easier. If you've ever changed jobs mid-career or if uh, any sort of life circumstance has ever happened to you, certainly we have all thought, I wish I knew God's will. And what if I told you today that we could definitively, for all time, settle God's will for your life? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul writes, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, you may think, well, that's cheating. I need to know specifics. I would like God to hold my hand and walk me through every single one of these things. In a sense, we do rely on God. In a sense, we do reach up and we do hold His hand and He guides us through many life decisions. But in another sense, the will of God for you is simply this. Your sanctification. Now, sanctification is closely linked to another English word, holiness. Sanctification and holiness are basically the same concept. Uh, it's a matter of being both set apart and a matter of being morally righteous. Okay, So in the Old Testament and in the New Testament... To a lesser degree, but in both Testaments, we can see that certain objects, certain places, certain people are set apart. That is, they are simply designated for holy use. Whether it's what we might call the holy place or even the holy of holies. A place designated as holy or the elements of worship in the Old Testament faith. Or certain people, the priests in particular, they're set apart. They are removed from a normal sort of existence and they are set apart for something other, something different. In fact, what we might call something holy. But in the same way, we use the word holiness to refer to morally righteous individuals. So, we refer to God as holy. God is holy because everything he does is right. God is holy. There is no moral corruption in him. God is holy. He is completely righteous. But not only that, people can be described as holy as well, in the sense of being morally upright. How does this happen? 
Well, let's go to the board. Uh, I stole this graph, and if it's helpful for you, graphs are sometimes helpful for me. I stole this from Wayne Grudem, just like I stole the last graph from Wayne Grudem. You will find that there's nothing original in my lesson this morning. Um, what we have in the process of sanctification are three stages, right? We have, we are slaves to sin, we are growing in holiness, and we are perfected in holiness. Uh, as we are slaves to sin, I forgot to write this, from birth, we are slaves to sin, and the graph goes something like this. We oscillate back and forth between guilt and conscience and more depravity, and we are oscillating like this. But we are completely slaves to sin. 100% we are given over to sin. This is pre-conversion. Here we go. And then at conversion, something happens and we are boom. Something happens at conversion and we are moved from slaves to sin automatically into the, a different category of growing in holiness. Now, one might think that growing in holiness would be a straight line, straight up to heaven. But it's not. <laughs> growing in holiness is also a staggered line. But this staggered line does have a trajectory. And the trajectory goes up until, at death, we are perfected. And... After death, we will always be perfect in holiness. This is the process of sanctification in our Christian life. Uh, in our Christian life, we should not expect that at the moment of conversion, from then on, whoo, just getting better and better with Jesus all the time. That's not the teaching of Scripture. Rather, there are ups and downs. There is remaining sin. There is a struggle. There is a war that is to be fought. And we are to fight the war ruthlessly, but really. And as we fight the war, will others will notice an upward trajectory in our Christian life. I say others notice an upward trajectory in our Christian life because the... I don't know if it's a... I don't know what the relationship is exactly... But it seems to be an inverse. The more, in fact, you grow in holiness, the more you recognize the remaining sin in your life, and so the less you feel that you're on this upward trajectory. But that's why God gives us each other. And God commands us to encourage one another through this progressive life of increasing holiness and to point it out to each other. We point it out to each other, and on this upward trajectory, on the last day of our life, we are finally perfected in holiness. So, uh, just let, let's talk about an overview of the doctrine and, uh, and move from there. Uh, sanctification is a transforming of our nature. So, in that way, we need to think of sanctification like regeneration and not so much like justification. Okay? In justification and in adoption, we have these legal declarations of God. God legally declares in justification, this individual is guiltless. 
and this individual has the righteousness of my son. A legal declaration. In adoption, God declares, this individual is my child. There is no degree, there is no, uh, there is no progression in these things. You are either justified or you are not. You are either adopted or you are not. But sanctification works a little differently in that it is a transforming of our nature. Now, I said it's like regeneration in the sense that regeneration is the point of conversion where we are really changed. We go from death to life. We, have, we become a new creature, and that is a transformation. It's not like regeneration, though, in the sense that regeneration is not a progression. It is not as though you are, um, you know, you're kind of doing the Christian thing for a while and you're attending Sunday school classes for a while and then you slowly begin to be regenerated. No. Regeneration happens in a moment in time, but they are similar in the sense that regeneration is transformative and sanctification is transformative as well. It transforms our natures so that we more and more increasingly hate sin and love the things of God and we are conformed, this is the second point in our overview, we are conformed to the moral character of Christ. You don't need to turn, I'm going to ask you to turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians and Romans 6, but as we're moving there, just through the, as we're moving just through this overview, uh, let me read some passages to establish some points as we go through. Uh, so in Philippians chapter 2, verse five, excuse me, verse 5, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Okay? So in verse 5, he commands us to conform ourselves to Christ Jesus. And then he talks about the work of Christ. And in verse 12, he says, Therefore... The therefore hearkens back to what he just said. Okay, you are to become like Christ. Therefore, verse 12, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, what do we see here? Sanctification at its heart has to do with our conformity to Christ. Specifically, our conformity to his moral character. We will never attain godhood. Becoming like Christ is not our path to deity. But our conformity to Christ is, is a pathway to our conformity to his moral character. He was perfect in all he did, and therefore we are commanded to be on an increasing progressive path to perfection through, throughout our Christian life. And so we see here that in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, we are told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This is going to uh, play into the idea that we have a responsibility in our salvation. Uh, but in verse 13, we are told it is God who works in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. So which is it? Are you working or is God working? Yes, thank you. Uh, yes, you are working and God is working on this path of progressive 
holiness in your life, you are to work and God is to work. And I like the way that our author uh, states it in his text. He says, God works in ways that are appropriate for his divine agency. Christians work in ways that are appropriate for their human agency. As creator, God works appropriate to his agency. God not only is the creator like at the beginning, he also creates new life. And that uh, action of creating new life extends throughout our entire life and into death. God is the creator and God works all these things according to his good pleasure. But at the same time, we are called to our own agency in this path of sanctification. And this agency takes the form of both a passive and an active uh, element. Okay? So, uh, let's look at the... We've seen here that it is God who is working. I want to prove to you that the primary agent of our sanctification is the Holy Spirit. So, if we were to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3... You'll see in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul writes, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, right? We are being transformed into the same image, that is the image of Jesus, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Okay. So as we consider that it is both God's work appropriate to his agency and our work appropriate to our agency, the primary actor in the Godhead who is acting upon you for your sanctification is the Holy Spirit. We each play our role. The Holy Spirit is enlivening us and convicting us and interceding for us. And in all of his work, we are enabled then to do our work in sanctification. So where does the power come from? There. <laughs> where does the power in sanctification come from? We can say all day long that God does his work and we do our work, but at the end of the day, we must agree together that the power for sanctification comes from the Holy Spirit. The power does not come from us. Yes, we cooperate. Yes, we do what we are commanded to do. But the power to do this comes from God himself. And so if we look at our role, uh, it is both passive and it is active. Uh, we see both of these at work in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We see both our passive and active role in sanctification. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Uh, what is our role in our relationship to the progression of, towards holiness in this Christian life? First, we have a passive element. We are to present 
our bodies as a living sacrifice. Sacrifices aren't all that active, usually. Sacrifices tend to lie on the altar. Sacrifices tend to be submissive to the one with the knife. Sacrifices are uh, yielding themselves to the one that is doing the sacrificing. Paul calls us to submit ourselves as living sacrifices. Now, we are not to literally be sacrificed by the Lord, but we are to present ourselves as passive agents, allowing the Lord to do his work in us. And that is part of your responsibility in your sanctification. If you are to fulfill your end of sanctification, yes, the Holy Spirit has his role. One of your roles, though, is to yield. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. But that's not all. That would be easy enough, right? Just sit back and ride the wave of the Holy Spirit all the way up to heaven. No. Paul goes on in verse 2, and he tells you to be active now. Don't be conformed. Transform your mind. Uh, Test and discern what is the will of God. Right? All of these things are active. They are commands. They're something that you should do. In the course of verse 1 of chapter 12 and verse 2 of chapter 12, Paul has now commanded us that our role is to be both passive and active. And if this confuses you, well then welcome to the club. Right? This is Christianity. This is our path to sanctification. Yes, we are commanded to fight and make war against our sin and to fight for greater and greater holiness, but realizing all the time it is not our power at work in us. It is the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us increasingly into the image of Christ. Okay. Um, Our author lays out for us three stages of sanctification, and I like his alliteration here. Uh, He uses the positional stage of sanctification, the progressive stage of sanctification, and the perfected stage of of sanctification. Here is where we see the uh, positional stage of sanctification, right? From moving from slaves to sin into a new creature, we have now been positionally sanctified. We see the progressive sanctification all the way up. And then finally, we are perfectly sanctified at the end. Let's just prove this to ourselves from the scripture. Uh, positionally sanctified, we see a hint of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. You remember that the church at Corinth was... They had issues. The church at Corinth had issues. One might say major issues. One might say that if our church were facing these issues and it were, make, it were to make it to the messenger inquirer, our faces would be quite red with embarrassment. The church at Corinth had major issues. We can't go into all of them right now, but listen to what Paul says about them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. He was going through and he was telling them all of the things that uh, those who are outside of Christ are. And then in verse 11, he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Anytime the Bible uses the word saints to describe a Christian, that Bible, the Bible is saying that person is in fact holy. And here in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6, we see the past tense use of sanctified. 
You were sanctified. At a point in time, your position changed from being unholy to being holy. It is, in fact, equal with our conversion, our regeneration. That is, our positional sanctification. But Paul also speaks of our progressive sanctification. We've already read it in Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13. Uh, Let me just go back there and I'll point out to you. Uh, Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, I'm sorry, we haven't looked at this one yet. Uh, Philippians 12, 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Uh, you see, when Paul was with the Philippians, They were obeying the teaching, the moral teaching that Paul had brought to them that in fact is in conformity with the word of God. But Paul rejoices to know that after his departure, they obey much more. You see, they are on this path of progressive uh, sanctification. And so Paul rejoices to know that the church that he planted at Philippi, uh, the members of that church are in fact progressing in salvation much more than even when he was with them. They continue to uh, be perfected in their salvation. And then finally, in Philippians chapter 12, verse 23, let's show ourselves that there is a final sanctification. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23. Start in verse 22, just to get the whole sentence. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Spirits of the righteous made perfect. I love the way the author of Hebrews, I'll say that because we're being recorded. I have particular conviction on that. I love the way the author of the Hebrews paints this picture of an already scenario in Christians' lives, right? He is speaking as if you are standing before God's throne and and the last day has come and gone and we are just there in celebration. He speaks as if it is so certain that he can speak of it as if it is real now. And he's talking about the cloud of witnesses. I'll use another Hebrew expression. And he says one of them, one of those groups, are the spirits of those who are now perfect. Why are they spirits? Well, because they have died, presumably, but Christ has not yet returned to join their spirit to their body. So in our final, our final sanctification actually happens in two stages. At death, when we are separated from our body, our spirit is completely sanctified, made completely perfect in holiness as we enter the intermediate state. We are made perfect in our spirit. Now, there is a further stage along this line where uh, Jesus returns, uh, the dead are resurrected, we are joined again 
our, our spirit and our body are joined again, and uh, our bodies will in fact be perfected in holiness as well at that time. But these are the three stages. These are uh, the three stages in uh, sanctification that the Bible talks about. So uh, if, you, if you ever are reading through the scripture, by the way, our, our job here is simply to familiarize you with the doctrine so that when you go home with your Bible and you stumble across something, you have a category to put it into, right? If you're reading through your Bible and you see a past tense uh, word used for sanctified, what does that mean? That means you were positionally sanctified. At regeneration, you became holy. You became a saint. This is how God sees you. If you're reading through your Bible and you see that sanctification seems to be a process that is ongoing through our Christian life, now you have a category to say this is progressive sanctification. If you're reading your Bible and you realize that there is a uh, perfected sanctification to come, then you now have a category for that too. That's the overview of the doctrine. I'll pause. Any questions? I'm learning. You can teach an old dog new tricks. Any difficulties you see with this doctrine? Um, B.B. Warfield was a... I'm sorry, not B.B. Warfield. B.B. Warfield, uh, never mind. I, I, I've been reading in various places, but um, it's actually John Murray. John Murray has a difficult time agreeing that we as Christians have an agency in our um, own sanctification. John Murray would be uh, more apt to... Let's just talk about God's work. Now, of course we respect John Murray, but, but that's a difficulty. It's a tension. And uh, as we approach these doctrines, uh, of course we're laying it out as we understand them, but we're not saying to you, that this is, it's so clear in the Bible that uh, there's plenty of room for discussion and back and forth and, and all this kind of thing. Plenty of room for that. No discussion? All right, moving on. Uh, let's look at the argument. Let's go to Romans chapter 6 as a, uh, as a case study. Romans chapter 6 as a case study of sanctification. I like to see that not only can we, uh, can we work out these doctrines by doing what I just did with the overview of, of taking all these uh, verses from different places and realizing how they fit into the greater context uh, and, then, and then working out a statement of our doctrine. Uh, not only do I like to do that, but, uh, and, and that's what we would call systematic theology, but uh, from my own kind of tweaked understanding of biblical theology, I'd like to see, in the Bible, does anyone ever just straight argue for this in a, in a sustained manner? Do they just go all out and say, I'm going to argue for this doctrine, and it fits like, you need to believe this, and I am going to go hard after it. And in fact, sanctification happens like that in more than the two places we're going to look, but it does happen in Romans chapter 6. Okay, in, in the book of Romans, Paul is arguing for justification. Okay, the church at Rome is not a church that he's ever been to. 
Okay, uh, we, we know that from clues within the text. He longs to get to Rome. He wants to minister to the Christians at Rome. But lo and behold, the Holy Spirit did his work all on his own, and he didn't need Paul to plant the church in Rome. Nevertheless, Paul wants to get there, and he wants to minister to them, but he's never been there. So if he's going to write a letter, a letter of introduction, what does he want to talk about? The primary theme of Romans, I argue, is justification. It is the moving from guilty to righteous in God's sight. Now, are there any problems with this theology that a guilty sinner can move from, uh, from their guilt without penance, without making their own atonement? Can they move to a state of righteousness? And what are the objections to this? One objection is, well, good for you. You just keep on sinning as you always have, and you're just going to trust in the grace of God to save you. All right? Paul says, oh, no, 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 no. Sanctification. Okay? One objection that Paul preempts is the idea that Christians believe that we are saved by grace, therefore we can just do whatever we want, and on the last day we'll be saved. No sanctification okay uh, Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 4 what shall we say then are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means how can we who died to sin still live in it do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul is defending the gospel. He is defending the gospel and he is defining sanctification. He is, he is defining sanctification in order that sanctification might be a defense to the gospel. And in this defense, he begins by saying that just as Christ died and that death has been applied to us, that death being by the power of God, for the glory of God, right? So too, in a parallel way, Christ's death, the power and the glory of it are paralleled in our life. In newness, our new creature existence in this growing in holiness stage. So the growing in holiness stage should be marked by the power of God for the glory of God. Just as Christ's death and his resurrection were for by the power of God and for the glory of God, this is how we ought to live. That's heavy. You know the Hebrew word for holy is derived from the same root as heavy? And if I lived in the 70s, which you guys had such cool words. It's such cool words. You said heavy. That's heavy, right? Think about how heavy this is. Bear it. Hold it up if you can. This is the holiness of God in that in the death and resurrection of his son, he then transforms us that by the same power and to the goal of the same glory, we might be transformed in holiness and sanctification. Okay? 
Paul, this is Paul, this is what he's arguing for in chapter 6. Okay? So verses 5 to 11. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There's a lot of language about Jesus in this argument for sanctification. It's almost as if our sanctification, our growth in holiness, is towards the goal of moral conformity to the likeness of Christ. And it is empowered by the work that Christ has already accomplished. Imagine, it all comes back to Jesus. Jesus has died once for all. How does that correspond to our sanctification? There is a once for all sanctification in your life. It is positional sanctification. And that is what Paul is arguing for in verses 5 through 11 here. He is arguing for positional sanctification. Just as Christ died once for all, so you consider yourselves dead. Dead to sin, that is. You see, down here we are slaves to sin. Above this line, at conversion, we are set free from sin. In fact, consider yourselves dead to it. But I actually start closer to slave to sin than I hope to be at the end. Yeah, you do. But positional sanctification says consider yourselves dead to it. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Just as Christ died once for all, so in your experience you died to sin. Consider it dead to you. He goes on in verses 12 through 19, to argue for progressive sanctification. Do not let sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Wait, I thought I was dead to sin. I thought I was dead to sin. I thought I should consider it dead to me. You should. And then in verse 12, he says, Do not let sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought forth from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. I'll just pause there for a second. Okay. Uh, Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. This is your responsibility. You are being commanded. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. In fact, you are not to present yourselves to sin. Rather, you are to present yourselves to God. This is the yielding. This is the passive nature of our sanctification. We, in our responsibility in sanctification, we must yield to God. We yielded to sin when we were slaves to it. We allowed ourselves to be carried along 
by every whim of evil that our hearts can muster. Take into account common grace. I do. But we are we were down here slaves. So up here, no longer yield to sin, but yield to God. Present yourself to God to be carried along by Him as instruments for righteousness. Verse 15. He continues his discussion of progressive sanctification. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Okay, this is, again, more work that we need to accomplish. This is, uh, this is the progressive sanctification and the, the active progressive sanctification that is our part to obey. Okay, I, I want to move ahead. Uh, Paul is arguing for sanctification, and he proves uh, positional sanctification. He, prog- he proves progressional sanctification. And now in the final verses of this chapter, he gives you your motivation for sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you you are now ashamed? For the end of these things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who memorized that verse? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, right? It's, it is in, it's in a context. It's in a context of being argued for sanctification. The difference between being down here and being up here. The wages of sin versus the free gift of eternal life, right? It, it's in this context of motivating you out of shame and into... Uh, the freedom uh, to be this, uh, you have become slaves of God, the fruit you get from sanctification, right? Out of shame and into the fruit that you get from sanctification. What Christian wouldn't want this? This is Paul's argument for sanctification. How do you want to live your life? What do you want to be marked as? How do you want to spend your, uh, your personal hours inside your own head? In shame, in guilt, in regret. No, we want to spend our lives growing in holiness, growing in our conformity to the moral character of Christ so that at the end of it, we won't be ashamed. Rather, we will have the fruit of sanctification in our lives. Okay, so sanctification argued for in Scripture, but Paul also uh, teaches us how to live out sanctification. Okay, 1 Thessalonians. Turn to 1 Thessalonians, if you will. 1 Thessalonians, in my view, is all about sanctification. It is a treatise on sanctification. Now, chapters 1, 2, and 3 are a bit of a narrative in 
First uh, Thessalonians. Paul is saying, uh, you know what? I was there. I planted the church there, and I saw you grow. And then I had to move on, and I planted another church. But I got to worrying about you. I got to worrying about you, how you were getting along. And it seems that uh, the reason Paul was worried about how they were getting along is because they were undergoing some persecution. Undergoing some persecution, Paul was like, is their faith strong? I'd like to get away and get to them, but I have other responsibilities. I couldn't get away. And he says, when I could stand it no longer, I sent Timothy to you. And Timothy came and he visited with you and he encouraged you and you encouraged him. And Timothy came back to me and he gave me a report of how your faith is abounding. He gave me this report that my worries, I I was worried for nothing. The Holy Spirit was in fact doing what the Holy Spirit promises to do. Your faith was abounding. So why is he writing the letter? What could he have to say to them beyond that? Right? He was worried, and, uh, and he, his worries were abated. They were, in fact, being sanctified. So what does he spend chapters 4 and 5 doing? Instructing them further about, about sanctification. In, uh, in uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, uh, Paul is picking out specific particulars about sanctification that the Thessalonians, and in fact we need to be concerned about. Uh, At the end of verse 3 there, am I out of time? I'm close. Uh, At the end of verse uh, 3, Paul says, uh, for this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. He says, that you abstain from sexual immorality. I'd like to make a book recommendation to you real quick. Um, Do you have a library card? Raise your hand if you have a library card. Be ashamed if you don't. I don't mean to uh, go against your, any, any of your Sabbath convictions, but the library is open from 1 to 5 today. If you don't have a library card, go get a library card. Uh, the library has a service called Hoopla, which is a digital uh, ebook, audiobook kind of thing. And there's a ton of really good resources. Now, um, I was, I, I was, I, I like to do, you know, look at different denominational perspectives on a topic as I'm teaching it. I was on Ligonier.org, which is um, a conservative Presbyterian uh, website, a a great resource, and it recommended to me this book. This book is called Sexual Detox for for a guide for guys who are sick of porn. I want to recommend this book to you. Men and women alike. I, I was a bit surprised that R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul's organization, recommended this book to me under the heading of sanctification. Right? Not under, not under the heading of men who are sick of porn, right? But under the heading of sanctification. And I, and I wondered why, and so I, I tried to find a copy of it. The audio book is only an hour and 42 minutes long. I'm really pressing hard for you to get this book. If the audio recording is only an hour and 42 minutes long, I don't know what the paperback is. It's $8 on Wikipedia.org. It's got to be a quick read. But it's free on the library service. Get it. Why? Why? This actually, you would think by the title, this is like a self-help practical guide. This is like a step one. Get, be safe. 
your computer filtering software, right? Uh, step two, get an account event partner. That is not the way this book works. This book is actually a treatise on sanctification with a particular case study of sexual immorality as its foundation, and it plays it through. Not only it, it this pastor, he's so pastoral, he begins by uh, asking us to really see sin for what it is, to really hate sin, and he pulls out scriptures that helps uh, men see uh, that sexual immorality in this way, how, how defiling it is in the sight of God. But he moves into the care that Christians ought to seek out and provide to one another. He's never vulgar, but he is frank. Okay. Uh, Tim Challies or Chalice, uh, C H A L L I E S. Tim Challies, I assume. Title? Uh, sexual Detox. We'll get you there. Being a case study, I think this could be incredibly helpful to you, not just when dealing with issues of holiness and righteousness and fighting against sin and fighting for holiness in your life in this area, but it's a case study showing you how to do it biblically and you can apply it to so many areas, so many areas of your life. Dave? That's a plug. Yeah, Dave. It's interesting that, that Paul, when he says the will of God is your sanctification, and then colon, the very next thing is, Abstain from sexual immorality. Exactly. exactly. That's how he defines it, basically. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you. And, and that is why it was wise of Ligonier to, to, to recommend this book under this heading. Uh, because, uh, you know, when John Piper actually gave the introduction, uh, and I tried to steal it from him, he was actually talking to uh, a collegiate age group, a youth and collegiate age group of young men. And he was saying that young men often want to know, what's God's will for my life? What's God's will for my life? And he pulls out this verse and he says, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, abstain from sexual immorality. Okay, And that's an, a message that young men in particular need to hear and need to hear often and old men need to hear and need to hear often. And you ladies probably need to hear and need to hear often. I'm not one of you, but I assume so. Right? Uh, it, is a, it is a defining issue, not only in our culture, but it has been a defining issue over the centuries. And one of the primary practical outworkings of our sanctification we need to think about is our own sexuality, how it was created by God, how it uh, functions for the benefit of a married couple, how uh, God is pleased when uh, married people engage in uh, their sexuality. But in all of these things, there is also the immorality, the other side of it, where we twist and debase the good that God has created. And that is not to mark the Christian's life. There are other uh, particulars that Paul talks about in verses uh, 1 through 12 here. Uh, beginning in verse 9, now, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God. So uh, there's brotherly love. Uh, there is the issue of those who have died. Uh, not only was Paul concerned about the Thessalonians, and it, it finally built up in him to where he needed to send Timothy to find out how they were doing, but when Paul gets the message back that their faith is abounding, there is one thing that's been on their mind. There's one question that's really been bothering them. There is something that they would like some uh, 
further explanation about. You see, we believed in Christ and, uh, and you know, we trusted that uh, you taught us the day of the Lord is imminent, but people have been dying in our church. Right? We thought the return of the Lord was imminent and it turns out some people have died. And we don't know how to reconcile that with uh, what you taught us about the return of Jesus. And so uh, Paul then goes on to say to them that uh, he doesn't want them to be unaware, uh, uninformed about those who are asleep. But in fact, God keeps them. They have been, their spirits have been perfected in righteousness. And let me just throw this in here as a practical application. Thinking back to last week, sanctification is not assurance. Do not rely or attempt to rely in any way on this progression as evidence to you that you are saved. The assurance that you have that you're a child of God is the internal witness of the Holy Spirit testifying to your spirit that you are a child of God. You, in fact, are probably the least qualified to recognize this progression in your own life. But when I die and you bury me, I have left strict instructions with my wife. You are not to parade a slew of people up on there declaring how they know for a fact that I am saved. I don't want that. But if you can bring somebody up to the podium... And they can say, I saw his life. And I trust that the evidence of his increasing holiness gives us hope that God was in fact at work in him. And we trust that the Bible is true. He confessed Christ. There was evidence. And now the Lord's taken him. We can believe that he is in heaven. Not on the basis of assurance. You cannot have assurance of my salvation. But you can see the evidence in each other. And you should use that evidence to encourage each other. I have to, I have to move on. Um, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul again proves that it is the work of the Holy Spirit that works the sanctification. But I want you to see the means of your sanctification. Okay, um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Well, just, just look up at uh, chapter 4, verse 8 there. No. I, yeah, okay, chapter 4, verse 8. Who gives His Holy Spirit to you, okay? One of the means of your sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and that's the primary, but there are other means. Beginning in verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. First means of your sanctification that you ought to take advantage of. Their names are Pastor Mark, Pastor Keith, Pastor Keith, Pastor Thad. The first means of your sanctification that you ought to be taking advantage of, hearing the word preached to you, allowing them to exercise pastoral care over you, being honest with them about your struggles, letting them counsel you and build you up. We ask brothers to respect those who labor among you. Uh, verse 14, and we urge you brothers, admonish the aisle. Brothers, 
Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. It's not the pastor's job alone to exercise the means of sanctification to get us all there. It is not their job alone. It is the job of the brothers. Exercise your responsibility to each other. Admonish each other, encourage each other, help each other, be patient with everyone And in so doing, you will be a means to sanctification. Look at verse um, 27. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. I don't know what Paul knew about whether the Holy Spirit was uh, writing Holy Scripture through him. I don't know that for sure. Uh, But Paul commands that this letter be read to all the brothers. The third means of your sanctification is the Word of God. And those are not in like order of importance. They're not in any sort of order. They're just in the order that I found them in the text. The word of God is an essential means to your sanctification. You want to know what God thinks about sin? Find out what he says about sin. You want your heart to be changed with regard to the deceitfulness and depravity of sin? Find out what God really thinks about it. You want to be enthralled with a vision of what it means to live in Christ-like holiness? Find out how Christ lived. Find out what his values are. Find out where he went, who he talked to, his teaching, and his moral character. If you want to be like Jesus, find out what Jesus hated and what Jesus loves. We're done. Um, You will not be perfected in this life. Uh, You will not reach full perfection in this life. Some Pentecostal denominations believe that everyone who was saved has necessarily reached perfection. More common is a Wesleyan, Arminian position that not everyone reaches perfection, but some can, and in fact some will. Uh, A closer examination of those passages will reveal that we will not reach perfection in this life. Dave, will you pray for us, please? Father in heaven, we, we do rejoice that you have sanctified us in Christ and set us apart for yourself. Uh, we also thank you that you've not left us to ourselves, but given us your Holy Spirit Amen. and Word. And we thank you that you are faithful, Lord. And so we, we do pray to you as the God of peace that you will sanctify us completely. And may our whole spirits and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. For you who calls us, Lord, are faithful, and you will surely do it. Amen. We bless you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Make it so. Thank you, guys. We start our Doctrine of the Church next week. Doctrine of the Church starts next week. Good job. I think I stopped.